Open up to uh, Romans 15 this morning. As you're turning there, I want to share something with you that I uh, said to the early service this morning. Um, this morning, uh, in the first service, when Danny was praying for the offering, you know, he was just thanking the Lord uh, for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country and that you know, we get to celebrate this weekend and start thinking about all the, the changes and the way things are going in our country and in the world right now and how it's you know could be possible that we don't have those freedoms forever. <clears throat> and the thought came to me, what if this Sunday, what if this Sunday was the last Sunday that we were allowed to s- assemble together and worship the Lord and preach from the gospel with, without any consequences of that. Let's say they came out and said, from now on we are outlawing any religious assembly, any preaching hate speech from the Bible, and uh, churches are, are shut down from now on. And we knew that, and this was our last Sunday to be at church together. How would it be different? I started thinking, what if this was the last sermon I had to preach this Sunday? When it, am I going to be satisfied with that? Because believe me, there's there's some sermons that I look back on that I preach, and I'm like, man, I'm glad I got another Sunday to make up for that one. And so I was thinking, I need to approach every Sunday as if this is my last chance to get to preach the gospel. And I think we all need to approach when we come together, man. This is my last Sunday. To be able to, to, to do this. How am I going to finish strong? And so if there's something that you would do different being here because this was the last Sunday that you had to do it, do it. Because we may not have next Sunday. This could be the last one. You never know. You know, we still have freedoms in this country. And... Uh, we need to take advantage of that and not take it for granted, which is what I believe we have done for a long time. The Church of the United States, instead of taking advantage of our freedom, we've taken them for granted. So let's not do that anymore. Let's let this be a different Fourth of July where we're taking advantage of the freedoms that we do have to proclaim truth and to tell people about Jesus. So... Let's move on. Romans chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So today we're going to start with verse 7. So let's all stand together and receive God's word today. Paul says, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you so much for your word, the truth that you give us today to look at. God, I pray that you would let those truths take hold deep down, deep down in our hearts, God. And Lord, I pray that we would um, just approach this day together, this time together, as the last time we have it together, Lord. How would that be different? God, we thank you for the freedoms that we do have. We thank you that we can assemble in this place this morning without fear of somebody coming in here and shutting us down or, or arresting us. God, I thank you that I have the freedom to proclaim truth without being persecuted for it. So, God, I pray that you would use all this that we have for your glory this morning and for life change to take place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this text that we just read, Paul continues what has pretty much been his mode of operation in Romans, which is that he calls us to certain behaviors by putting those behaviors within the framework of the gospel. And this text is a great example of something that you have heard me say many times now. And that is how the gospel isn't just for salvation. We don't start with the gospel when we become a Christian and then move on to something else. It is just as essential for everyday life and just as essential for spiritual growth as it is for our initial salvation. The truths contained in who Jesus is and what he has done affects every aspect of life, not just parts of it. You know, here's how I believe that many of us have learned to deal with issues that come up, you know, after salvation, especially if we have grown up in church or or been in it for for very long. That is, if you want to know how to become a Christian, you look at the gospel, but for any other issues that come up, there are other answers. If you want to learn how to overcome your anger, then you need to learn some anger management techniques. To overcome a sinful habit, you you would get an accountability partner or go through a a 12-step program. Having trouble in your marriage, you need to go to a marriage seminar. Rarely do we actually look at the gospel when trying to deal with these other things that come up. And, And why would we? I mean, we're already saved, right? And so we start thinking, I don't need salvation, I need my marriage fixed. I don't need salvation, I need to kick this habit, or at least that's kind of the way that we we tend to think that way. And there's nothing wrong at all with some of the things that I mentioned, like anger management techniques and, and programs and accountability partners and all that, as long as those things are being used as a supplement to the gospel and not completely in place of it. The truth is, to overcome anger... You need to look to the gospel. There is something about it that you either don't know or don't really believe that would speak to whatever it is that is causing that anger to be in in such operation in your life and to have such a control. To overcome a sinful habit, look to the gospel. In order to have a strong marriage, you look to the gospel. You know, the vast majority of the problems that we think we have in life are in reality just symptoms 
of deeper problems, of deeper heart issues. And the gospel is the only remedy for the heart. And every heart issue that we might have can be directly tied to one or more aspects or truths of the gospel that we are just not quite getting. This text in Romans 15 that we just read is a great example of this. The issue at hand here was that there were people in the church in Rome that weren't getting along with one another. There were two opposing sides on, on different issues, and they were allowing those differences to cause division. And this was a very serious thing that needed to be addressed because Jesus said, a house divided against itself will not stand. And so even though there were petty issues that these people were fighting over, what these petty issues could eventually lead to was very serious. I mean, the survival of the church at the epicenter of the known world at that time was at stake. The glory of God in Rome was at stake. And so the problem, division in the church. The solution, Paul tells them what to do about it in verse 7. He says, accept one another. You're not getting along, and so what you need to do is accept one another. And then it almost sounds too simple. But really it's not, I mean, because if they accepted one another, then they wouldn't be fighting over and be divided about these petty issues. So the answer to maintaining unity in the body is to accept one another, even those who have differences in, about certain things. But Paul doesn't leave it at that, because if he did, then he would just be approaching this issue in, like in the examples that I just gave about how we tend to approach things. Like, if you got a drinking problem, well, just quit drinking. I mean, if you didn't drink so much, you wouldn't have all these problems. you got a, a problem with what you're looking at on the computer, well, then get a filter for your computer. Get an accountability partner. you got a problem with anger, go get a punching bag that you can hit on when you're feeling anger. Go take it out on the shooting range so that you're not taking that aggression out on anybody else. You're always fighting with your spouse, well, just quit doing that. I mean, just start complimenting each other more during the day. And so we give all these suggestions as ways to fix the problem when all we are really doing is trying to manage our behavior. But changing our behavior won't fix anything because our behavior is a result of a deeper heart issue. And if we did these things, I mean, they might help for a little while. But it wouldn't last very long because we haven't dealt with the real issue. There's a deeper reason for the drinking problem. There's a deeper heart issue going on that brings about the anger. There's a deeper issue for the trouble in the marriage. I mean, if we could just stop, we would. But we can't. Because there's something bigger that's way beyond just our own ability to overcome it on our own. Paul understood this, and so he doesn't end with verse 7. He doesn't just say, okay, y'all are divided now. We'll just accept one another and then expect everything 
to be fixed. There is a deeper reason of why they aren't accepting one another. There is a heart issue at play here that is causing this division in the body. And so Paul keeps writing and he goes straight directly to the only thing that he knows will change the heart. Verse 8 and 9. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And so now, instead of referring to them as the weak and the strong, as he did in chapter 14, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jews are what he's referring to when he says the circumcision in verse 8. And we've looked already at the disagreements that were going on here. It was about eating meat and not eating meat. It was about observing certain special days and looking at all days as if they were all the same. It was about drinking wine and not drinking. And these disagreements more than likely were rooted in the the ethnic tensions that were going on, the ethnic differences between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, more than likely, they were bringing in a lot of their food rules that they had known their whole life under the law, and the Gentiles were more than likely bringing in some of their looseness. For centuries, the tension between Jews and Gentiles was extreme. The Old Testament even demanded a clear separation. Jews were to keep themselves separate from everybody else, and and in no way were they to intermarry with anybody that wasn't also a Jew. I mean, after all, they were God's chosen people. And so they viewed everyone else as enemies of their culture and enemies of their God. And so in turn, all the rest of the world, the Gentiles, would view the Jews as, as arrogant and prideful and exclusive. You know, the racial tension that we've experienced here in the U.S. in our history, I mean, was mild compared to some of the tensions that existed between Jews and Gentiles back then. And it was bad. And some of those same tensions still existed, even in the church. Even there were groups of both of the members of both of these groups in the church in Rome who believed in Jesus, some of these tensions still existed. And so in order to relieve the tension and to break down this dividing wall, Paul points them back to the gospel. First, he says that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, a servant to the Jews. How did Jesus serve the Jews? By paying their ransom so that they could be saved from the wrath of God. And then at the end of the verse, he says that Jesus did that to confirm the promises given to the fathers. All the promises that were given by God to the Jewish people in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 puts it this way. It says, for as many as are the promises of God in him, in Jesus, they are all yes. All the promises are realized in Jesus. All the promises, all the shadows and symbolism, all those Old Testament stories and all of the hope that was contained in and and looking forward to, it was all revealed and came to be realized in the person of Jesus. He was the whole point of all of the Old Testament. Not just of the Old Testament, but Jesus was the point of all of history itself. 
And so in this competition in the church going on here between Jews and Gentiles as to which ones were more favored, as to which ones had the greater right to exercise their beliefs, verse 8 gives a lot of support to the Jews. Jesus came to serve you by paying your ransom, and he is the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to your forefathers. Pretty strong evidence that Jews have the upper hand here. But Paul isn't done yet. In verse 9, he says, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes on to quote several Old Testament passages that were prophesying about how the Gentiles were going to be included in these same promises. All of those promises that were given to the Jews, the Gentiles were included as well. And so what Paul has just done was to show that both of them, Jews and Gentiles, both have equal blessing, equal standing, equal acceptance in Christ, equal rights to all the blessings that were to be realized from the promises of God. In Jesus, there is no division. There is no racial tension. He is the great uniter. Paul is saying, hey, Jews, in spite of all of the disobedience and unfaithfulness of your people all throughout your history, Christ has accepted you. He has paid your ransom. And he's saying, hey, Gentiles, when all the Jews were ostracizing you and excluding you from God, Jesus, who is a Jew himself, he has accepted you and brought you in. So you who were rebellious, disobedient, and unfaithful, He forgave you. And you who are ostracized, rejected, and orphaned, he has accepted you and made you a part of the family. Paul just reminded them of these great truths so that they would then be so full of joy and gratitude and excitement that they couldn't help but extend that to one another and forgive and accept each other. I mean, look what Paul says in in verse 13, the whole point of why he's pointing all this out. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Everything he just said, that you are forgiven and accepted and adopted in Christ. Believing that so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The spillover of their encounter But these truths of the gospel would result in the unity of the body. There were deeper heart issues that was causing them to be divided. More than likely issues like pride and insecurity. Not realizing their position that they had in Christ with God. They were competing for position in the church. And so so Paul points them to the truths of the gospel That would remedy those hard issues. And there's a big lesson in this for us, especially in light of what is going on in our society and our culture today. You keep hearing this big push for things like social justice and racial equality and ethnic diversity. And all those things are good as long as they are dealt with in the context of the gospel. And everyone knows that it would be a really good thing if, in spite of all of our differences, we could all come together and and get along and be unified, regardless of our race and our cultural background. But what everyone doesn't know, or at least doesn't want to acknowledge, is that there really is only one way 
to make that possible. There's only one way. And everything else that we try outside of this one way doesn't work. Cultural sensitivity training, that doesn't work. Town hall meetings that we have in order to improve race relations, that's not going to get us there. I would say even forced integration. We've seen that that doesn't even work because just because you put two groups of people together, you're not guaranteed that they're always going to get along with one another. Am I saying that the races shouldn't be integrated? Of course not. What I'm saying is that the way that we have approached this has been all wrong because we haven't been going to the only true thing that works, the only remedy. The only real and lasting way for people of different races, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, social status, the only way for them to be united is in Jesus Christ. That's it. And the reason is, is because racism and prejudice isn't an education issue. It's a heart issue. And the gospel, Jesus, is the only remedy for the heart. Everything Paul's trying to do here and get these people to see here in the church in Rome echoed in something that he wrote to the church in Galatia. Galatians 3, 26 through 28, he says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I love the fact that, I mean, for a church in East Texas, ours is pretty diverse. Not near as much as... I would like to see it, but we have a greater mix of races than a lot of churches, at least in this part of the country, do. And I think that's good because it's a good sign that the gospel is alive and active in the church. The more people hear the good news of what Christ has done and they believe and embrace it, And begin to see themselves and begin to see other people the way that God does through the blood of his son. The more we will become racially diverse as a church body. Because Jesus is changing our perspective. He's breaking down those walls of division. He's dealing with the heart issues that ultimately are what divides us. And it's one of the greatest ways that God is glorified because there really is no other way for people who are so different, not just to get along with one another, but to truly love one another. That can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. And that right there is the whole goal that Paul is aiming for in this Notice what he said at the end of verse 7. 
He says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. The reason why Jesus accepted us, God's glory. The reason why we are to accept one another, God's glory. You heard me talk a lot about that last week. And this leads me into how I really want to wrap this up today. Last week I talked about how we should be all about God's glory. That that should be our number one priority in life, in this church, in our marriages, at work, in everything that we do. We should value God's glory more than we value any glory that we could gain on our own. And some of the comments I got after that message were things along the lines of, man, that was great, and I want that, but how? How do you do that? What exactly does that look like? And so I want to try to flesh that out before we leave today so that we can understand just what that means. I brought some props here to help us get a better visual of this to understand it. I've got this flashlight right here and I've got a mirror and when the mirror is turned towards the flashlight and then it's turned out towards you there's a reflection of the light and so in essence you can say that the mirror is glorifying the light but glorifying it the way I understand it is more than just reflecting it The light is glorified, I believe, if somebody looks at the mirror and goes, wow, what a beautiful color of light that is being reflected in that mirror. What a spectacular light I'm looking at there in that mirror. It's not just a reflection, but a reflection that leads to worship, that leads to amazement and awe and and worship of the thing that is being reflected And in order for the mirror to accurately reflect the light, it has to be turned towards the light. It can't be turned away from it in order to reflect it. It's got to be turned towards it. And so let's just take something as an example. Let's look at marriage to see how this works in that. How do you glorify, be about all God's glory in a marriage? Well, most people tend to view marriage as with the purpose of marriage um, being terminated on each individual spouse. That the purpose of it ends in them. The husband tends to view it as a way to get what he wants and have his needs met. And the wife tends to view marriage as a way to get what she wants and to have all of her needs met. But God invented marriage to be a reflection of him. The whole purpose of marriage is to glorify God. And so based on the illustration that I just gave, part of what it means to glorify is to reflect. So how can a marriage reflect the nature of God? Well, first you got to say, how would you describe the nature of God? Well, I believe we would describe it with words like love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and patience, and sacrifice. And so if my marriage is to reflect him, then those attributes, those things need to be in operation. They need to be practiced 
in my marriage. And so now, instead of looking at my wife as a means for just my pleasure or to get my needs met, I need to look at her as a means to glorify God and to reflect Him. And so now I'm going to look for ways to display His forgiveness by forgiving her whenever I feel that she has wronged me. I'm going to look for ways to display His patience when she tests mine. I'm going to look for ways to display his grace by being a dispenser of grace on her, which means giving her what she doesn't deserve. And I'm going to display his mercy by being merciful to her, which means not giving her what I think she may deserve, like a good tongue lashing or the silent treatment. And so instead of giving her what I think she may deserve, I'm going to show her mercy. And I'm not going to give her that. But I'm going to show her grace and give her what she probably doesn't deserve in that moment. And you know, many times God will allow things to happen in our marriage to where these attributes are even more magnified. And he will bring about situations where it would be a whole lot harder to extend forgiveness or grace or mercy. And he does that in order to highlight to us our absolute need of him. To where we're brought to those places and we go, God, I can't do it. I can't forgive him. I can't show grace. I can't be merciful. God, I can't do it. I need you. I need you to do it through me. And he does. If we would submit ourselves to him. And this is how pure joy is experienced in a marriage. And how couples grow more and more in love with one another and more and more in love with God by reflecting him in a way that leads to worship. Not just in worship in the one that's looking at the reflection, but in the ones that are actually doing the reflecting themselves. It just draws you closer to God. And so then you can take that same approach and apply it to any situation in life, whether it's in work or even in your recreation, or the way that you interact with your church family. How can I reflect the nature of God in this situation? What can I do to show others the absolute worth of Christ above all else? But here's the deal. You won't be able to accurately reflect him if you don't know him. If you don't know him. And so the key to being able to live for his glory Is getting to know him, seeing him for who he truly is and understanding what it is that he has done. In order to be able to glorify him like the mirror, your life needs to be oriented towards him. That means turning it away from whatever it has been turned towards and turning it to him, which is the definition of repentance. And that's what we do when we explore the treasures of the gospel. 
And when we discover those treasures, when we receive that revelation and begins to hit us right in our heart, then that leads us to being so full of him and his truth that him being glorified in our life is just the spillover in everything that we do. That's all about him. Jesus is the only remedy. You know, you hear in church a lot, Jesus is the answer, and it seems like a cliche. But nothing can be more true. He's the answer. What's the question? It doesn't matter. He's still the answer. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have not left us on our own. But you have given us the answer. You've given us the remedy to every hurt, to every broken place in our life. The remedy for every rejection, every failure, every sin that we get entangled up in, every relational conflict, the answer for every troubled marriage, Lord, we acknowledge the fact that we have grasped for every other answer and remedy that the world says this is what fixes when the whole time the answer is standing right there in front of us and it's only in you King Jesus So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you right now to be in operation among us and you expose those things in our hearts that are the deeper root issues that is causing all these symptoms that we seem to be so obsessed with and focused on. And then, Lord, you reveal the specific truth about you and what you have done that would... would heal that spot in the heart. Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that we need you. We need you just as much now as we did when we were lost and didn't know you. We need you just as much. And so open our eyes to see you, I ask, in your most precious and holy, powerful name. Amen.